Hello, and welcome back to the SEPS podcast with me, Boone Christensen, licensed marriage and family therapist. There's an idea in our culture that if you date or marry a therapist or have one in your family or as a friend, that they're always going to be psychoanalyzing you. This is an unfair stereotype. It's certainly not true for all therapists or even most therapists. But full disclosure, it is absolutely true for me. I'm thinking about people all the time, wondering about their inner workings, why they do what they do. I understand how this could feel violating, especially if I was devoting my brain space to thinking about you and developing criticisms about you and thinking about ways to fix or change you. I would hate that too. But as I've learned more about people, I've found myself becoming less critical, less judgmental, and less anxious about trying to fix people. I'm more likely to come to compassionate conclusions and feel less anger and reactivity because of it. For example, I might see someone exhibiting victim mentality or narcissistic behavior. The thing is, I know that no one wants to be seen as a victim or a narcissist, and I know that these behaviors come as adaptations to something, often being raised by a manipulative caregiver. You can only survive by developing manipulative tactics yourself. So I work through the analysis, then decide whether I can interact healthily or keep space from that person without needing to judge their goodness or badness or their relative healthiness. This episode will hopefully give you some knowledge that will help you do the same. We'll be reviewing these posts, which I've linked in the description. First, are we raising weak kids? Second, are what is actually healthy? Parts one and two. And then the gap between knowing what to do and actually doing it. All right, let's get started. Are we raising weak kids? I've gotten this question a lot recently in some form or another, and the short answer is yes. But the long answer is no, all things considered. I'll explain. Past generations had it rough. They had more wars, more abuse, more crime, less social welfare, more disease, more economic insecurity, more lead in their pipes, and they actually had to make phone calls instead of texting people. The further in the past you go, the more do or die it was. And the result? More people died. And they died a lot earlier. And those that didn't learn to survive hard things. It's just that the way they survived looks different than how kids do it today. And if we really look closely, we'll find that we don't want kids to adapt the same way their parents did. Let's look at anxiety and depression, which most kids identify with these days. Anxiety is the activation of the fight-or-flight response, which all mammals have. And depression is the activation of the freeze response, for when the fight-or-flight response is overwhelmed or shut down. Everyone is going to have stressors and get their fight, flight, or freeze activated. The healthiest and most resilient people encounter stressors, allow their natural emotional responses to cycle through, meaning they don't avoid emotions, and their brains learn to become less afraid of those stressors because of it. These people occasionally cry, get mad, take mental health days, and are generally happy and social. They might not be at the top of their class or hyperproductive, but they feel okay about that. I find that environments where emotions can play out naturally are the exception rather than the norm these days. It's more common for a child to live in an environment where their anxious or depressive feelings are viewed as problematic rather than natural, which makes it harder for emotions to play out and resilience to follow. Because having anxiety makes you problematic, and this thinking makes you more anxious, 
and overwhelmed, which triggers the depressive response. This is a tough cycle, producing a lot of kids on psychotropic meds or addicted to phones or games that drop out of college and dwell in their parents' basements. Full disclosure, I am recording this from my parents' basement, where I do live. Speaking of parents, what happened to them if their fight or flight or freeze responses ever got activated? You can imagine how these were seen in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. They weren't just problematic, but character flaws. Our parents were heavily shamed. There was no expressing anger to parents, such as in talking back, no taking mental health days, no crying, and certainly no being a sissy or a chicken. Not if you wanted to feel loved by your parents, that is. So you had a few choices. You could drop out of school, start drinking or smoking, leave home early, or rebel in other ways that allowed your natural emotions to happen. And all of these things, drinking, smoking, teen pregnancy, were much more prevalent in previous decades. Or you could sit down, shut up, dissociate from your natural emotional responses, and develop a somatic disorder like a good kid, such as fibromyalgia, migraines, arthritis, gut issues, overeating, etc. In my conservative religious neighborhood, you're more likely to find the latter. Good, God-fearing people who follow the rules, but also have a high incidence of chronic body conditions, and the worst dissociative side effect of all, immense difficulty feeling empathy for their children's emotions. But this makes total sense. The older generations have such little familiarity with overt mental illness because they had to adapt differently if they wanted to get by. I wouldn't expect someone who is taught to shame themselves for feeling anxious or depressed to suddenly feel compassion for someone else feeling that way. This doesn't mean that they aren't still kind about it, but they are more likely to feel judgmental when they can't relate. But one of the hardest things about the middle-aged population I work with is the double bind they feel with their kids. On one hand, they don't want their kids to have to endure the same hardships that they had growing up, so they enable them by bailing them out of stressful situations and continuing to parent them into adulthood. On the other hand, they feel resentful toward their kids for not picking themselves up by the bootstraps like they had to, and the parents convey that resentment through passive aggression. Again, this makes sense if you don't know how to address conflicting feelings, or even admit that they exist. Unfortunately, this double-bind combination puts kids in a double-bind. They feel bad about taking the handouts, but they don't know what else to do because they're never compelled to adapt to their stress. Their shame of weakness increases, but doesn't drive them to get stronger. It's more likely to drive them to depression. They aren't getting harshly punished into dissociation, which might make them more productive and relieve parents of that anxiety, but they also don't have the resources to recover properly and build resilience. So what do we do about these judgmental parents and their hapless children? First, we need to recognize that no one is the bad guy here. We're all doing the best with what we've got. Next, we need to recognize that people need certain things, one of which is the environment to recover from emotional stress. Children need to be allowed to be depressed and anxious and given space to digest their emotions, but without unnatural numbing mechanisms. An example would be letting your kids stay home from school if they're not doing well emotionally, making time to listen to and validate them without trying to fix their problem, and not giving them access to electronic dopamine medication, meaning actually letting them work through their emotions rather than numb out on screens. For parents to keep their cool while they do this, they also 
often need to heal. This is usually harder because it requires unlocking emotions that have been hidden away since they were children. They also need space to digest those emotions without judgment from others and also without unnatural numbing mechanisms, meaning parents, you have to watch your screen time too. Is it really too much to ask to produce humans that are both healthy, productive, and empathetic? Not gonna lie, it's a tall order. And it requires that we change how we view health from a measure of productivity and accomplishment to a measure of attunement with our own bodies and our fellow humans. All right, next post is, what is actually healthy? Part one. Recently, I've noticed how some people who have traditionally been defined as healthy have been making people around them less healthy. According to the current cultural standards of health, people are generally considered healthy if they don't qualify for a diagnosis, meaning they aren't reporting painful feelings and aren't engaging in behaviors seen as pathological. And that's all well and good. However, there are many things our diagnostic manuals don't thoroughly account for, such as how people make others feel. When I'm diagnosing, I'm typically not sending assessments out to my client's friends and family to get their subjective experience of my client. When we look at that metric, we can find more subtle ways that some ostensibly healthy people infect others with mental illness, like asymptomatic virus carriers, except there actually are some symptoms. Here is a generic family case that I might run into. We have a teen boy who's having trouble in school, who spends too much time sleeping, gaming, and scrolling through his phone. His diagnosis, major depressive disorder. We have a hardworking father who is very busy, but doesn't know his kids very well. He denies any symptoms of mental illness. A busy mother, either employed or heavily involved in the community or with her children, who spends lots of time helping slash getting her kids to do things. She denies any symptoms. So, did this child's depression arise from nothing? Maybe this kid just has a weird chemical imbalance that an absurd number of kids his age happen to have these days? It's possible, but there's an easier explanation that comes with gathering more data. As I keep exploring, I learn that the father feels immense pressure to not only provide the basics, but to spend long hours away from his family to provide luxuries. He also gains a sense of validation from his work, which might compensate for a sense of failure in other parts of his life. This validation seems to be preventing a pending depressive disorder, which might hit him during a midlife crisis or soon after retirement. But right now, it's covert depression, the symptoms of which are felt by his wife feeling lonely, his kids having a distant relationship with him, leaving them lonely and less resourced, and his guilt about that makes it hard for him to enforce healthy rules, which is a symptom for his children or will become problematic for them. He also might have an unhealthy weight or diet, which we don't tend to see as symptomatic of excessive stress in middle-aged men, but really it is. Just because it's normal doesn't mean it's not a sign of suppressed stress. I learned that the mother often feels lonely in the marital relationship. It might not be tense, but it doesn't feel intimate. And she feels that it's shameful to not be a super busy woman in modern society and for her kids to not be super busy in the right kind of extracurricular activities. She maintains a high stress baseline, perhaps fueled by an unhealthy relationship with Diet Coke or chocolate chips. The symptoms of this covert anxiety we have kids that feel controlled and judged by their mother. We have a husband who feels criticized by her perfectionistic demeanor. And she has a burgeoning arthritis or migraine issue. 
So who is actually healthier in this scenario? Are the parents healthy since they don't meet any DSM criteria per se? Or could it be the son since he can actually identify his feelings and the underlying sources of stress, whereas the parents may have trouble admitting the existence of their issues? Or is the whole family sick because the diagnostic symptom, but the diagnostic symptoms are only showing up in the child? We'll see part two. The first part discussed how what is healthy is may not correspond to what our diagnostic manuals say. Someone may meet criteria, but may be healthier than someone who doesn't, who projects their covert illness onto other people. This post is about how even if someone is highly symptomatic, it may still be the healthiest state for them, meaning that the symptoms might actually be necessary or healthy. Imagine a couple presenting with sexual difficulties. The husband has erectile dysfunction, has low desire, difficulty feeling arousal, and low, low motivation to even improve sex. His wife considers this to be pathological, that the husband needs to get help. As I gather more info, I learn that the husband feels highly criticized by his wife. Most interactions are her asking him for something or telling him something that she is dissatisfied about, particularly sex. He has noticed her interacting flirtatiously with some of the men at the country club. Whenever he tries to tell her about his painful emotions, she responds with criticism. He feels shut down or on edge around his wife. His survival mechanisms are activated, which usually diverts blood and energy away from sexual functioning. So, this man's sexual dysfunction is actually his body responding exactly as it should to this kind of stress. It would be more pathological for him to have sex with someone that he doesn't feel safe around. Another quick example. Imagine a parent saying, My daughter doesn't talk to me about anything. I think something is wrong with her, but she doesn't tell me what it is or how she's feeling. Therapist? What would happen if she were to tell you that she were feeling angry and ashamed? The parent. Well, I tried my best to find ways to help her stop feeling that. Therapist. That makes sense, but I wonder if she feels invalidated by your attempts to fix her feelings. She won't feel safe expressing feelings unless she feels that she is allowed to have them. Also, when the emotional brain is activated, receiving logical suggestions and advice often feels violating. The emotional brain can't process logic. It sounds like your daughter has adapted very healthily by refraining from expressing feelings, because doing so would likely make her feel threatened by your response. Maybe we could work on some skills that will help her feel safe talking about hard things with you. So, the conditions that the husband and the daughter have are diagnosable, but they are actually signs of healthy adaptation. The issue isn't the injuries, the issue is that it is unsafe to try and heal from those emotional injuries through expression and processing, because it leads to more injuries. This husband and daughter would actually get hurt more if they tried to express what they were feeling. So they have adapted by shutting up. Obviously these issues are cyclical. The wife feels more critical the more her husband shuts down, and this parent reacts with more anxiety the more her child doesn't talk, and so on. So. We need to redefine what is healthy, what is not healthy, and what is a healthy adaptation to an unhealthy system. When we refrain from quickly pathologizing behaviors or feelings, we can find that they make sense and actually might be healthier than their alternatives. Alright, the last one is the gap between knowing what to do and actually doing it. 
To know and not to do is not to know. This quote, which a quick Google search attributes to just about every ancient philosopher, is scientifically false, or at least incomplete. That doesn't mean it isn't useful, but we should understand the nuances that come with it. I mean, how many things are you not doing that you know you should do? How much healthier should you be eating? How much more exercise should you be getting? How much less time should you be spending on screens? And how much less should you be judging people that aren't doing what they should be doing? To know and not to do is to have various impediments in life which have nothing to do with your character, motivation, or knowledge. Or at least, I don't believe we have the right to judge these factors for others, and we mostly do a poor job judging them for ourselves. Whenever I've explored gaps between someone's beliefs in what would help them and the inability to act on them, I've always found a reasonable explanation. These are not just excuses. They deserve compassion and consideration, though not necessarily agreement. A lot of people aren't even aware of some of the forces holding them back. Some examples. <clears throat> I might have a client who says, I know I should take my medicine, but I just keep forgetting. I can't take these kind of statements at face value. I know this person has been struggling with manic episodes for years. They're always thinking about it, so I know this isn't a matter of forgetting, or that the forgetting serves a purpose. Further exploration reveals that part of them wants to forego the meds and enter a mania because it's the only time they don't feel suicidal. The consequences of mania can be disastrous, but the offer of relief from excruciating emotional pain that could literally kill you is not something to be critical of. Or I might learn that a side effect of this medicine is weight gain. This teenager can't bear to gain 10 to 15 pounds, even if it meant more manageable anxiety, because her mother would notice and comment on it, triggering the mountain of trauma already built up in that relationship and the mountain of trauma behind the body shame. And this could lead to panic, which literally feels like you're going to die. So maybe taking this anxiety medication isn't a great idea until we deal with the body shame culture inherent in the family. Another example, I may have a client who says, my liver is failing. I know I should quit drinking, but I just don't have the motivation. Again, this isn't an issue of motivation. This guy knows this habit will kill him, and his family will suffer more than they already have if that happens. Further work uncovers the deep hopelessness this man feels, as he has tried to quit many times in the past, but the trauma of being sexually abused as a child, which men can rarely talk about safely, always arises and incapacitates him if he isn't buzzed to some degree. He's stuck and dissociates from that hopelessness to numb the pain by pretending he isn't motivated. One more example uh, for my religious friends. I believe in the religion, but the church thing isn't for me. I can't tell you how many people pass judgments on statements like this. It sounds like a lazy statement, a sort of, I don't really care sort of thing. But again, I have always found way more behind statements like this. And even if someone believed and actually felt a calm dislike for church, that would not be justification for judging them. What I usually find are deep associations of pain with certain religious behaviors, such as, my mom would make me feel like a damned soul if I showed up late to church, or my dad freaked out on me when I wore a blue shirt, or my pastor responded to my pornography relapse by lecturing me, then telling my parents, who lectured me again, which triggered another relapse. 
These are just mild examples of things I've heard, but they demonstrate how someone would have a hard time feeling safe at a place thought of as a hospital for sinners. If you incur more trauma than healing by going to church, it makes sense that you'd want to take space. Someone might be thinking, well then, why don't they just work through those issues? Well, again, for the same reasons that you aren't working through your issues. Oh wait, you say you are working on your issues? You're doing the best you can and change can be really hard and slow and non-linear? And that people making judgments on your progress or comparing your experience to theirs isn't helpful? That these are personal issues that you don't want other people taking responsibility for? Oh, that makes sense. I can tell that you're having a hard time with the fact that you know and can't do right now. I'd love to sit with you in your struggle and offer whatever help I can, but not impose my help or my beliefs in what will help you. So to sum up this post, we have no right to judge the internal experience of others. Even if they try to attribute their struggles to character flaws, someone judging themselves does not give us the right to judge them. Next, there are many forces at play keeping us from doing what we want. People literally go to therapists and doctors to find out what those are. I have never encountered badness or laziness as an explanation after effective exploration with someone. Compassion allows someone to safely explore what those forces actually are. Last, people are in charge of their own struggles. They may involve you, friends, family, or God on their own terms. It is not your job to push anyone. It may be your job to meet them where they're at, show love, and leave invitations, but pushing tends to create a net loss. Let people be responsible for themselves and be responsible for yourself, and set appropriate boundaries if necessary. So that's the end of our episode here. So to answer that title question, is anyone actually healthy? In a sense, Everyone is adapting how we would expect if we knew all the details of their environment and how those interact with their biological components. Are their current adaptations serving them? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe your involvement in their environment will allow for different adaptations, such as being a therapist that offers new tools at a safe place to process. We might not be able to make objective conclusions about people, but we can always learn more and seeking to learn without passing judgments gives us the best chance of interacting in ways that are healthiest for us and for them. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. And again, if you'd like to see a blog post or a podcast episode about a particular topic, please reach out either on Instagram, Facebook, leave a comment on the blog or through my email, which I've left in the description. Thank you so much.